Uh, Emily launched a new series on Sabbath last uh, Sunday that she uh, subtitled Savoring Life. And um, if you weren't here for last Sunday, Emily situated the Sabbath command, the fourth of the Ten Commands, uh, six days for work. The seventh is the Sabbath, so rest already is the essence of that command. Um, situated that as an act of resistance to the power of empire. We can think of empire as whatever like economic system we're operating under uh, combined with military system. Uh, obviously for the people of Israel, Sabbath was an important uh, subversion of the empire they were under when they were in bondage in Egypt, the Egyptian slave masters. Later this uh, empire was the overlords of Babylon in the time of G uh, Jesus that was the Roman occupation forces. Um, so the first command in the Hebrew Bible from Genesis chapter 1 goes multiply and fill the earth. Uh, we have pursued that command with reckless, joyful abandon, haven't we? I mean, like, it's like, when is it mission accomplished on that one? It's like, wow, nine million pe billion people. Um, that's like an easy one to, uh, to work on. You'd think that this other command to take a day off would be welcomed with equal enthusiasm. Uh, but the powers that be, the powers of empire, conspire against us. Um, you know, I grew up in the city of Detroit, the heart of the labor movement. The uh, labor movement fought for the 40-hour work week, time and a half for overtime, paid vacations. In my era, like it was common for families to go on vacations together for a week or for two weeks at a time. Now that all just seems quaint to us. Uh, our empire is consumerism and it is re relentlessly driven 24-7. Uh, this little gadget in my pocket means that many of us are annoyingly a buzz away from a work-related communication, vacation or day off, be damned. We're kind of in a different era now than we were before, and Sabbath rest has suffered as a result. The Sabbath command in the Ten Commands also honors the dignity of work. Six days are for work. The seventh is a Sabbath, but the erosion of our middle class uh, means that a lot of us have low-paying part-time jobs with irregular hours. Sabbath becomes as complicated as natural family planning, just to use a little religious humor there. Um, the burden of empire is mirrored in the burden of religion. And we see this in the way that Jesus approached uh, Sabbath in his teaching in the Gospels. Uh, what, what characterizes the gospel teaching on Sabbath is not so much do it and here's how. That, that was like understood by the people of Israel. There was no need to make that kind of uh, teaching available. It was really a dispute, a very fierce dispute over interpretations of the Sabbath. Um, the first of the three sections that, and, and the, what I've given you there in Matthew 11 and 12 is a great example of Jesus kind of engaging in this dispute about how to interpret the Sabbath commands. The first of the three parts is more general, Matthew 11. I'll read that now. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying, carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what we might not understand is that term yoke uh, was used to refer to a rabbi's interpretation of Torah, which is the kind of the Jewish term for the law of Moses, and it also refers more generally to the law of God, and it also refers more generally to something like Scripture. So no one thought of Scripture as something that you could learn apart from the help of a rabbi. Everyone understood that Scripture could be interpreted and was in many ways. The Jewish approach to Scripture is multivocal, not univocal. So scripture is the thing we argue about. It's not the thing that says one thing to all people. So Rabbi Gamaliel had his interpretation of Scripture. It was his yoke. Uh, Shammai had another yoke, another interpretation of Torah, of the law of God, of Scripture. Hillel, still another. So this is Rabbi Jesus describing his yoke, which infers his interpretation of Torah, of Scripture. What Jesus is saying here is that compared to the yoke of the other rabbis, my understanding of Torah's burden is light, not heavy. Aim of Torah, he's saying, the aim of Scripture is to give you rest from your burdens, not add to them. So remember, Jesus sees himself as a rabbi for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is, these are like his people. These are the ones he sent to care for. They were the people of the land. Uh, who are not able to observe Torah in the way the Pharisees, who were the most popular religious party of the day, prescribed. The main reason that the people of the land, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, couldn't obey the, uh, observe the, the commands were primarily economic disadvantage. Uh, the people of the land had been taxed so heavily, they'd been essentially taxed into subsistence living by the Roman occupiers. The Pharisees were drawn from the privileged class, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, from the oppressed classes. So they couldn't get to the temple for the prescribed feast. They couldn't afford the prescribed sacrifices and so on. Now, many interpretations of Torah regarding Sabbath observance had become burdensome to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was a command that was meant for relief, but in, instead it imposed a heavy burden. Jesus' yoke, his distinctive interpretation of Torah, of Scripture, is reflected in the most prominent command, which for Israel was the, the Sabbath command. If you had to pick one thing that was central to Israel's identity, to Jewish life, it's Sabbath. Um, Betsy, happy birthday. Thanks for your birthday today. Um, <clears throat> Facebook makes me a, like a pastoral genius, you know. <laughs> so let's, let's read what Jesus has to say about Sabbath in particular. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he's quoting uh, one of the Hebrew prophets, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then I want to insert the Gospel of Mark adds a really key line. I think uh, Jay Lee uh, made reference to it in the sharing. Uh, he adds the line, uh, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. And then it goes on. He left that place and entered their synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, suppose one of you has only one sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath. Will you not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. It was restored as sound as the others. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three gospels that have a similar point of view, all have this sequence on the Sabbath with very slight uh, variations. All of them include these two episodes, the picking the grain on the Sabbath and the healing of the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And, and this, uh, using two examples of the issue uh, indicates emphasis. And they all end with another element that adds, adds uh, considerable emphasis, this statement that Jesus' approach to Sabbath, which remember represents his approach to Torah in general and to scripture in general, was viewed as a threat, a very significant threat to religious authority. This is what first set the authorities against Jesus. This is when the plans came, like how can we completely undo what he's doing? So notice a few things about this. First, um, the Pharisees are using the law, they're using Torah, they're using scripture to accuse Jesus and the people that Jesus stands for, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the first instance, uh, we see that little line, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. There's accusation behind that. In the second instance, it says they asked him, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So it's all about accusation. They're using law to accuse. Jesus, on the other hand, is using the law. He's, he's referencing the law. He's arguing uh, with the law, with Torah, with scripture to defend those who are being accused. That's a huge difference in the use of Torah and of scripture, isn't it? Um, this, this is a key thing to remember for a couple of reasons. First, Jesus is not disparaging Torah. He's not disparaging the law. Later, Gentile Christians, including major leaders like uh, Martin Luther, driven by anti-Semitism, would consistently denigrate Torah. Jesus didn't do any of that. You know, and, and this is kind of in the popular mentality of Christianity where, you know, that's, that's the mean Old Testament of the Jews. You know, like we're, we've evolved beyond that. That's, that's anti-Semitism. That's not Jesus. Um, as Jesus himself wasn't Jewish. No, Jesus is not dismissing Torah. He's interpreting it differently than the Pharisees. He's offering his own yoke, his own interpretation. 
Second, this is a, a key thing that Matthew adds for emphasis. This part where he says, where Jesus says, but if you had known what this means, I, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting one of the prophets. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is actually speaking of the end of religion as humans have known it from the beginning of time. Virtually all religions are rooted, originally at least, in the practice of sacrifice. I mean, it was one of the things that have baffled anthropologists for a long time. There's actually been no anthropological explanation that people agree on for like, why do human beings sacrifice? What is it about sacrifice that humans in every society, in every culture, seem to fall into this practice? Um, Rene Girard, uh, favorite around, around here, at least around here, this place where the speaking happens, um, was the proponent of scapegoat theory. And he says, our human tendency to resolve our internal conflicts by organizing around someone who's a little bit different than the rest of us and accusing them of some crime and then expelling them, that is actually the foundation of human society. Before we did anything else to contain our violent tendencies, we did this and we still do it. Girard also says that the scapegoat mechanism is also the foundation of all religion. He says in particular, sacrifice, uh, the practice common to every religious tradition, is simply the ritualization of the scapegoat mechanism. Early humans found that, wow, this scapegoat thing really works. It brings peace to this community that's in conflict. Wow, we really need it. And so instead of waiting for it, they ritualized it through sacrifice. So the child that is sacrificed, or later the goat, or the sheep, or their turtle dove, is not guilty of any crime, is completely innocent. Jesus, who exposes the scapegoat mechanism in order to stop us doing it, also came to end sacrifice. So he quotes the prophets. So, I mean, the cool thing about Judaism is it has the capacity for powerful internal critique. If your religion doesn't have the power to critique itself, there's something wrong with your religion. If your whole approach to religion is defend, 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 but never to critique, especially to critique your own practice or your own beliefs or your own perspectives, then you're kind of like outside of the Jesus approach to religion and you're outside of the Jewish approach to, to, to religion. So Jesus quotes this very controversial saying of the prophets, I, God, desire mercy, not sacrifice. For a religion that did a lot of sacrifice, the temple worship was organized around sacrifice. The religious economy of Israel was dependent on sacrifice. The, the, the livelihood of the priesthood and the Levites, the, like the leadership class of the temple, was dependent on sacrifice. And you here you have one of the Hebrew prophets saying, I, God, desire mercy, not sacrifice. He doesn't say, I desire mercy and sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
Then Jesus quoting this startling word from the prophets as, if you had known what this means, you wouldn't condemn the innocent. This is like scapegoating language. Scapegoating and sacrifice, which is the ritualization of scapegoating, are all about what? Condemning the innocent. So the yoke of the Pharisees, their interpretation of Torah, law, scripture, uses Torah, law, or scripture to accuse, whereas the yoke of Jesus, his interpretation of Torah, law, of scripture, uses Torah, law, and scripture to defend those who are accused. That is a critical difference in the yoke of Jesus. Another way of thinking about it is that Torah or law or scripture has two voices. Uh, this is a classic Jewish way of thinking. One is the voice of accusation. The other is the voice of defense in the face of accusation. One voice is against us. The other voice is for us. You can see this reflected in Jesus talking about the Sabbath being for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. So to take on the yoke of Jesus to embrace his interpretation of Scripture is to tune out the one voice and tune in the other voice. That's what it means to have Jesus as your rabbi, is to tune out the voice of accusation and tune in this other voice that is fundamentally for us. So let's apply this to Sabbath, uh, this idea of taking a regular time to rest. In theory, we know it's a great idea. I mean, we hear Jay Lee share and we go like, Jay Lee, that's, that's awesome. That's like, I am so happy for you. Taking a day off a week from your work, unplugging from, from the internet, taking a quarterly day of retreat, that is awesome. I cannot imagine doing anything remotely like that. I'm not sure I'd want to. It seems frightening. It's scary. Um, in theory, we know it's a great idea. You know, this, uh, I was... Uh, fiddling around on Facebook, and I saw an article that summarized some of the research on the importance of rest and creativity. And the article was, uh, being busy is killing our ability to think. And the author, and, you know, uh, summarizing the research says, information overload keeps us mired in noise. Th this, this one killed me. In 2011, so that's six years ago, Americans consumed five times as much information as 25 years prior. We consumed five times more information every day as we did 25 years ago. Outside of work, we process roughly 100,000 words every day in the form of media and advertisements and all the stuff coming our way. Little good, the author says, comes from being distracted. Among many qualities that suffer, recent research shows creativity takes a hit when you're constantly busy. 
And, and creativity isn't just like for the arts. It's some like niche capacity. Like it's really key to human thriving. I mean, you've, have you ever been in a situation where you've been like, you have a hard work problem and, you know, funky dynamics in the office or whatever, and you, you take a run and you take a shower, and while you're standing in the shower, just something, some, something comes to you, and there's like a shift in your perception, and you go like, oh, I could take this approach, and you take that approach, and it kind of like unravels the whole knot. Creativity is like what, what makes us human in the image of God. It's our creativity that causes us to thrive as a species. Um, being able to switch, the author says, between focus and daydreaming is an important skill that's reduced by insufferable busyness. Uh, I think there is a, there's a lot of uh, examples in science where scientists are like daydreaming and they come up with these crazy solutions to things. I think the benzene atom was kind of a mystery. How would the benzene um, molecule was configured and the guy who figured it out was staring in the fire daydreaming and he saw like a serpent going around in a circle and he goes, that's it. And that turned out to be the structure for the benzene molecule. So creativity is huge. So what if one day a week we did whatever we could that was reasonable, that we could actually do, not what we can't do, but what we can do? What if we did whatever we could to unplug from our regular work? And we did whatever we could to disconnect from that tsunami of information that comes from email and Facebook and checking the news every hour or so and all that. You know, any kind of information checking that has the slightest compulsive feel to that, what if we just like let that go for a day? Could that actually give us some space to savor life a little bit more? Like to taste different aspects of life that wonderful and good and refreshing and enhancing. That's just one suggestion. There may be other ways that work for you to observe a Sabbath. Now, how might we adapt our brains so our brains are more inclined to embrace rather than resist a Sabbath rest? You know, the older you get, you realize you kind of have to like work with your brain. You have to like trick your brain to want to do things that you want to do but your brain doesn't want to do you know do you know what I'm saying you kind of realize as you get older that you know this business of just trying harder and focusing and you know like making a list and all like it doesn't really fit my brain like uh, you kind of have to treat your brain like a like a toddler and distracted and you know, like make suggestions and make odious things look like they're I remember with the kids I, for a while this worked for like 10 years I'd, I'd say to one of the kids if they didn't want to do something I'd say I'll time you I'll time you Mark gets that go and they do the stupid thing just because I, I tricked them I thought oh my gosh this this seems abusive to me this just doesn't, this doesn't seem right but it works so well for a while it doesn't work anymore <laughs> how might we adapt our brains so that our brains are more inclined 
to embrace rather than resist a Sabbath rest. All of us, we like, okay, we want to do it. How can I trick my brain into wanting to do it more? I want to suggest that we focus our energy on noticing the difference between the accusing voice in our heads and this other voice that Jesus commends, the voice that is for us, that promotes our well-being, and that defends us against accusation. What if we just spend some time trying to distinguish those two voices in our head so that we could begin the process of ignoring the one voice and paying extra attention to the other. So the source of the accusing voice can be the internalized voice of empire, as the Bible uses that term, whatever economic system that we're caught up in. Uh, that voice might be the one that says, you'd better be working harder than your coworkers if you want to get ahead, or you better be seen to be working harder <laughs> than your coworkers in order to get ahead. It might be the one that says, or check the news again or your Facebook feed again who knows what you might be missing that fear of missing something is essential for consumerism isn't it like if consumerism is part of our empire one of the things that drives it is like the fear of missing something missing out on something it might be the voice of your boss or your co-workers who send emails after hours implying it's what good workers do. Look how, you know, focused I am on the mission of the, of the enterprise. Note to self, i got to stop doing that. I do that all the time. Whenever I think of something, I just shoot out an email. The source of the accusing voice can also be uh, religious, though. And this is what Jesus is adding to the equation. The accusing voice that says... You know, you're supposed to take a day of rest. What's wrong with you that you don't? You know, that, that I, I just want to cuss at this voice. You know, the subtle religious voice. Don't worry, I'm not going to. The subtle religious voice that presents itself as the voice of God, but is often the voice of the accuser instead. That is just, I hate that. Remember, the voice of empire and the voice of religion have been singing duets for a long time. And the voice of Jesus is neither one of those. It's not the voice of empire and it's not the voice of religion. And his teaching on Sabbath is teasing this out. So we're going to take a little time, if you're up for it, for quiet reflection now. It takes just a few minutes. Um, uh, when we do this at the end of our sermons, it's always just good to note we call it quiet reflection. It's not silent reflection. We're human beings. We make noises. People, you know, little kids make noises. And, you know, Brad's, you know, leaning back in his chair and he might fall over in the middle of the reflection and we'd all be chill with that, you know. So um, we'll just start with, uh, like we normally do, maybe like a half a minute to simply focus on our breathing as a way to quiet our thoughts. And then I'll repeat the words of Jesus from Matthew 11, let you kind of soak in those words for a little bit, and then I'll repeat in different ways the words of Jesus on Sabbath. And then see if after or during this exercise you have a mood shift about 
Sabbath or if you start having some more creative thoughts about how you might observe a Sabbath in your own life. Now let's begin by just taking a half minute to focus on our breathing. hear the words of Jesus who said come to me all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light my yoke is easy and my burden is light Hear God's heart toward us in giving us Sabbath. For Sabbath is made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. For Sabbath is made for humankind. Sabbath is made for us, for our benefit, for our well-being. Sabbath is made for me and for all of us. For Sabbath is made for humankind. Amen. Yeah. 